Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, my guest is Dr. Patrick Hansma. Dr. Hansma is a forensic pathologist, and he's also the author of the novel, The Grave Below. Today on the show, we'll talk about how Dr. Hansma's experience as a deaner led him to become a forensic pathologist. We'll talk all about The Grave Below, and we'll talk a little bit about his book collection, which inspired some of the quotes in the book. Then after the show, stick around for a trailer from my interview with Dr. Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell. But right now, here's Dr. Patrick Hansma. So we're going to spend most of the time talking about your brand new book. Uh, just came out in September. It's called The Grave Below. But first, let, let's get a little bit about your background. So you started out uh, studying biomedical science, and then you also worked as a deaner. Did you always intend back then to to go to medical school to become a doctor? Uh, yeah, I did, actually. That decision actually predates doing my biomedical science degree and working as a deaner. Um, okay. I, I picked that back in high school, in point of fact. Okay. So then how did, how did you then become a, a deaner? Was that just to, to gain some experience or was it something else? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. You know, I, I discovered the word pathology and what an autopsy was when I was in high school in my junior year, actually. And, you know, was, I was very green and just, you know, couldn't believe that they paid people to do this. And that was my career choice right there and then when I was 17. And then in my first year of college, I was walking through the uh, science building on campus and outside the cadaver lab was a piece of notebook paper written with Sharpie marker on it. It just said, Diener position available. Call Chuck at 752-6257. And I was like, I know what that okay. is. And so I called Chuck at 752-6257. And fortunately, I was the only applicant. And for the next six years, uh, I worked as a Diener and trained on the job as a pathologist assistant. Uh, and 752-6257 was my phone number for those six years. So that's that's how it happened. And so that's how I got my foot in the door in pathology and just continued to work towards going to medical school. Okay, that sounds a bit familiar. I, I actually trained on the job as a pathologist assistant as well. Oh, very so good. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so then I, I was going to ask you how you decided on to, to specialize in forensic pathology, but it sounds like you, you had that down when you when you were in high school already right yeah it did you know i knew i wanted to do autopsies and it was becoming uh immediately clear that to do autopsies consistently that meant forensic pathology you know i learned very uh -huh. very quickly that the hospital autopsy was kind of a dying species and has yeah. largely fallen by the wayside and in my current practice i do both um, but by and away the forensic autopsies are the the dominant portion of my practice Sure, sure. Do you think, you know, I, I've noticed that too, that the hospital autopsy is kind of, there are less and less of them every year. And like, I work in a place that has uh, pathology residents and I feel like, the, you know, they obviously get to do a rotation at the ME's office as well, but I feel like the uh, smaller amount of hospital autopsies is not necessarily a good thing for the residents. Do you, do you agree with that? <laughs> yes, I agree. And we could start a three hour long rant on that if we had the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the way autopsies are taught now is that the second least experienced person in the department trains the least experienced. You know, the 
resident uh-huh. who has done one autopsy now trains the brand new resident who's done no autopsies. And so we have perpetuated this vicious cycle of bad habits and poor understanding. And what we've created is a group of pathologists that dread the autopsy. And so right. it's really a vicious cycle that has done no one any services. Uh, so we really need to take steps in pathology to correct that and get people that love it and know how to teach it properly so that people will embrace it and actually come to enjoy the the art of postmortem pathology. Yeah, definitely. And I think this has really led to the, you know, there's a big shortage of forensic pathologists like yourself, not only in this country, but throughout the world. And that, that attitude is probably what has led to that. Oh, yes, I agree. You know, when your exposure to the autopsy is a hospital autopsy that you never knew really how to do it right in the first place, what are the odds that you will then choose a subspecialty like forensics that is entirely autopsy pathology? You know, it just, it falls off your list of choices immediately. So, you know, Mm -hmm. we've done ourselves a great disservice in forensics and we need to take steps to correct that. Yeah, absolutely agree. Let's get into the book then. So the the book grew out of a uh, short story that you wrote in 2003, I believe, and then a poem that a poem that you wrote in 2009. So can we kind of, uh, without giving away any of the book, really, what, what was the initial story like that, like back in 2003? So it's actually embedded within the novel as it is now. Uh, the short story was written uh, when I was taking writing classes in college and you know, okay. it's centered around this Diener. I had read on a pathologist's website that they thought Deaners had great character potential for fiction writing. And so I kind of took hold of that because I was working as a Deaner and I thought, well, I've got inside input on this. So when I had mm. to do some writing in college, I, I cranked out a short story about a Deaner who was also a grave robber. And the, there was no supernatural component to that story. Okay. That was just, you know, this, this guy who was living this double life you know, working in a hospital pathology lab. And then at night he was out in body trafficking. And it was kind of this, it was almost like gang rivalry between these groups of grave robbers. And so that was that story. And that is embedded within the novel. Now, the poem was entirely unrelated. I used to just try and write poetry when I was younger because I enjoyed basically organizing ideas I had for fiction that way, trying to see if I could flesh out a plot in a single page uh, organized as poetry. I'm no poet, but I I would give it a try. And so I did. And I was happy with the ideas I had in that one. And so I saw potential for a sequel to the short story I had written. And so the novel actually started as a sequel and had supernatural elements to it, i.e. it's got vampires in it. Then I realized halfway through that there was just no way that this thing was ever going to come to life with the short story being a prequel that nobody's familiar with. So I integrated the two and put the one into the other and tried to smooth them out. So that whole short story was, which was just terrible when I was in college because I had no idea how to write. I was still just learning. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. 15 years later, I revamped that whole thing and, and integrated that whole thing into the novel. So it's all there now and in much better form. Okay. And then the poem, is that what's kind of at the end of the book? The, the 11, I think it's called. Yeah, that's right. So that is actually a series of poems that 
follow 11 characters that all kind of converge on a single cemetery. And that was... I put that in there because I had recently seen a documentary about writing and collecting where it is now harder for people to collect process from authors that they collect because it used to be everybody wrote their drafts down on paper, right? You could collect mm -hmm. authors' manuscripts and their notes and their hard copy corrections. We do it on a computer now. And so right. your drafts are lost to the delete button. And so I thought, well, that's kind of interesting concept, even though I don't consider myself a poet and I think that my poetry is pretty lousy. I, you know, took the step of saying, well, nobody should think I'm a poet, so I don't care if you hate my poetry. I'm going to stick it on at the back of the novel so people can look at that and maybe get a glimpse at the process that went into this because process is a very collectible phenomenon. Not that mine will ever be collectible, but I at least wanted to participate. Okay. Okay. No, I, I think that was a great idea. I actually enjoyed reading those. And, and you're right. Like, I remember back in college, uh, there was a collection of, you know, because I like the, the Lord of the Rings, and there was a collection in the mm -hmm. library of like, they, they were like draft versions of right. all of those, those books. And, you know, you could see how the story evolved, which is, which was very interesting. And, and it didn't occur to me that you're right. Those things are, are lost now because because of the delete button. Yep. And I had so many chapters in this novel that I'd get a few hours set aside in an evening. I would write a chapter, I'd look at it and then hit select all and delete and walk away. And those are just lost, you know, mm -hmm. and hopefully they're appropriately lost. Hopefully they were the lousy material, but we'll <laughs> never know now. Right. Right. Okay. One of, one of the main characters, like you mentioned, is a deaner and being a deaner, you had kind of inside information on the field. Are there aspects of his character that are based on you? I mean, obviously, I hope not the grave robbing part, but <laughs> but some some of the other areas. Did did you base him on yourself? Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I took some superficial things from my youth and put them on this character out of necessity. Um, we used, a few friends and I used to on Halloween. Like after the party was done, we would take the jack-o'-lanterns and bring them into the real Greenwood Cemetery Okay, uh, because we knew that the police would patrol through there randomly on Halloween to catch vandals and stuff like that. And so there's just this beautiful experience, you know, that when you're 19 or whatever, where you're in there while the police are actually spotlighting the cemetery and they do a loop around and they come around and now there's a lighted jack-o'-lantern where only a few seconds before there was nobody. And so there's <laughs> that beautiful moment where you get to watch the police realize they're not alone. And okay. That was always so fun. And so I needed an excuse for my Diener character, Ryan, to be in a cemetery on Halloween night without a dead body in tow because he needed to be able to come and go easily. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wrote that in. He brings pumpkins into the cemetery at night. Also, I collect antiquarian books. and. I just, I can't write a novel without antiquarian books in it. That's just, there. there's no way I could leave that much of myself out of the novel. Uh -huh. And so I made him a reader of, I think I said 17th century English poetry or something. So I had an excuse for him to be in the antiquarian bookstores. And that is a superficial thing I put on him. Obviously, we both worked as deaners, but his character as a whole has nothing like me. Uh, he's very entrepreneurial. He's very 
monetarily driven. Uh Um, His moral journey is totally different than mine. In Christian apologetics, he's what we call the pre-evangelized in that he grew up going to church and is familiar with the Bible and Bible stories, but is not himself a convert. And that is totally different now from postmodern, post-Christian America, which the character Sarah actually represents. So those are two different forms of essentially the mission field embedded in these grave robbers. Uh, So Ryan, the Diener, is actually the character that I would argue the most with when I was writing. Oh, okay. I didn't like how he did anything. I, I would literally get in arguments as I was typing with him. I'm like, why would you do it that way? That's stupid. You're going to get arrested, <laughs> you know? And there's this weird phenomenon where the characters take on their life of their own when you're typing. Uh-huh. And you almost, it's less like you're thinking it up and more like you're a transcriptionist where the characters are talking and you're just trying to type it down frantically. Okay. <laughs> so, so that, that was my uh, relationship with that character for a number of years. And I still don't like the way he does things. And I can't believe he never landed in jail. <laughs> okay. Um, one, one of the other characters too is a, uh, a pathologist assistant. And I, of course I have to, because I'm a pathologist assistant, I want to talk about him for just a minute. You told me he's based on a real person as well. That was, was that Chuck? That you mentioned earlier? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Chuck is the basis for the character Phil. Uh, Chuck is aware of that. Chuck is the guy that trained me, uh, taught me really everything I know, you know, prior to my forensic training. But as far as gross pathology, how to perform an autopsy, that was all Chuck. And the scene in the novel where they're doing a Christmas Day autopsy, Uh uh, that was a real event for Chuck and I, where we got called in, neither one of us was on call, you know, but the boss says, we need this done. And what are you going to do? Right. And so yeah. we came in on Christmas afternoon and did an autopsy together. So that's Chuck. And, you know, there's no hiding it. I'm probably going to buy him a t-shirt at some point that just says Chuck is Phil. <laughs> okay. There's a, there's a great quote in that scene too. Something like not a, this is not a smell you would associate with Christmas or some, something like that. Yep. Which, yep. Yeah. The autopsy in that scene was fictitious, but, uh, you know, I, I just invented a case cause I can't remember what we cut that day, but I thought, what would I contrast with Christmas and, and septic bowel just seemed perfect. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. I can relate. So you mentioned the Greenwood cemetery and it's based on an actual real Greenwood cemetery that, that you visited when you were younger. Now this is in, this is in Michigan, right? That's correct. Okay. And it seems like because a lot of the story happens in and around parts of Greenwood, like this, the cemetery is almost a character in itself. Like, were you trying to, to make the, the cemetery into a character or make it very important, like a pivotal point in the, in the novel? Was that, was that intentional? Uh, yeah, that kind of evolved over time. I'm a big fan of horror. And one thing that kind of always drives me nuts is when they leave the cemetery in a horror movie. You know, like my favorite movie is 1968, Night of the Living Dead. And you kind of think zombies and you think cemetery. And I wish more of that movie took place in the cemetery, but only the opening scene does. And so as I started writing this, I wanted a story that actually took place 100% all in a cemetery. And I quickly realized it just wasn't feasible, or at least I'm not smart enough to write it. So instead, I made it a 
persistently recurring theme where they just couldn't even get out of it. You know, they just keep coming back to the cemetery. Yeah. And since it became so important, I kind of took on this idea that it was almost participatory, like they were they were coming back to it like good friends. And there is a scene uh, later in a different cemetery where after everything that transpires in it, and, and a lot does, people are dying and all sorts of stuff, the Diener character kind of reflects for a moment how apathetic the cemetery is to everything that just took place in it. Like he's walking away from all these events and it's just entombed mm-hmm. in the cemetery that has no concept of what just happened. I make no such statements about Greenwood, kind of wanting to set that implied contrast that almost like Greenwood is semi-sentient in this story and all the events that unfold in it. I don't make it overt because uh, I thought maybe that was a little bit too much for the audience to swallow, but I kind of wanted to hint at it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like Greenwood is his own, almost a person and the, the characters keep getting drawn back. And in fact, at the beginning of the book, there's, there's a map of Greenwood, which right away makes yes. makes you think, okay, this is an important place. Yes. Another aspect of the book, it takes place in two different time periods. So you've got the modern day 21st century. And then the, also part of it is in the 16th century. And the scenes in the, the 16th century, it, it's in, in a village for the most part. And, and it, that kind of revolves around the village church, which kind of mirrors. And I think you told me this too. It, it sort of mirrors Greenwood as well. Was that, that must have been intentional as well too, to sort of mirror the two places? Yes, it was definitely deliberate. In the middle of Greenwood Cemetery is the office building, which I, give some description of at the start of the novel, you know, and there's kind of this old decaying building in the center of the cemetery. And then when you um, jump back to the 16th century, in the middle of the village is the church surrounded by the churchyard, which would be their cemetery. And so there's always Mm -hmm. this link that you're never getting away from death in any component of this. You're always surrounded by it. And there is a constant moral story being told in these characters as well. And I wanted to contrast between the 16th century and the 21st century, the secular slash profane and the sacred. And so in the 16th century, it centers around a church, whereas the office building is entirely secular in the cemetery in the 21st century. So it was just another layer of juxtaposition uh, between uh, their moral development and their total depravity. Okay. Okay. Did the kind of two different time period thing, was that from, did you have that from the beginning or did that develop as you were writing? Uh, that was from the very beginning of the novel when it was taking, when I realized I was writing a novel, I was a couple chapters in, uh, when I realized what I was doing and that this thing had potential to be a full-blown novel and not just another short story like I dabbled in in college. Mm-hmm. Actually, the, the very first chapter of the novel started as its own entirely separate short story uh, from start to finish. That's all it was, was that chapter was just my writing a little short story about two characters in a cemetery. <laughs> and so um, okay. I actually tacked that on later to the novel. Um, so what is chapter three 
in the novel is actually my original starting point for writing this thing. And it very quickly became apparent I was writing a full-fledged novel and these characters had history and therefore I wanted to go back specifically to the 16th century. And the character Idolette, uh, if you look at when the 16th century portion takes place and what her age is, she must have been born in 1543. And I picked that date specifically because that was the date that Andreas Vassals published the first anatomy book, De Humani Corporis Fabrica Libri Septum, and Nicholas Copernicus published his De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium, which was the first book to propose a uh, heliocentric solar system. So 1543 was the date I wanted, and that, but we're never in 1543. We're about 35 years later. Right, <laughs> so that's what right. I did because I'm a nerd. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I, I can appreciate that. There's there's a place in Greenwood. Like I said, there's a map, and and uh, one of the places is called the Crossroads. And there's a few uh, pretty important scenes that happen there. Uh, so the the notion of a crossroads is is a you know that's in other uh, other mythologies and other stories. There was a movie in uh, I think I think it was 1929 a movie called Faust that part of that took place in the crossroads and i know you're into guitars so you're probably familiar with the story of robert johnson oh yeah and his going to the crossroads right so this is always the crossroads is kind of a place between two worlds or it's often where somebody you know sells their soul to the devil or makes a deal with the devil something like that is, is that what you were trying to do with the crossroads as well yeah um so there really is a real place that my friends and I would refer to as the crossroads right in the middle of the real Greenwood Cemetery. Um, okay. It was just, we just called it that for no reason. And as I set to writing this, I realized, well, that works out really well. You mentioned Robert Johnson. I'm actually a big Delta Blues fan. Uh, so oh, awesome. I, you know, that, yeah, that hit home for me when I started to write that I had in my past, my own crossroads location. And so because all of this story is the intersection both between 16th and 21st century and between secular and profane, I realized I wanted to use this spot that is called a crossroads to kind of just put another layer in like that. And I stumbled across a book called The Vampire, His Kith and Kin by Montague Summers uh, while I was writing this and found a random quote in it. I just happened upon it that as I was flipping through it, that said that a crossroads is undoubtedly the most haunted location in the world. <laughs> and I thought, well, that I got to use that. So I basically mm -hmm. just, I had ghost hunters in this. I had witches. I had vampires. I needed to incorporate these crossroads in the middle of this cemetery. It, it kind of becomes an axis to this whole universe that I have tried to write into this. So it was very much uh -huh. deliberate, and I was very much aware of the Delta Blues phenomena, you know, that that predated mm -hmm. it. Okay, yeah, that's I'm 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 actually glad to hear that because I yeah I'm a fan of Delta Blues as well. One one of the other things about the book, there are many quotes uh, from the Bible throughout it, and these are included as part of the dialogue. Like the characters actually speak in these quotes. Um, and, but there's also quotes from Edgar Allan Poe, St. Augustine, uh, even, even Shakespeare. So I, and you're a collector of books. I know you mentioned it. Did you have these quotes picked out ahead of time or did you 
like I always, anytime I find a book that has these, these sort of things, I always want to know, did you, did you have these picked out and write the story to fit them in? Or did you write the story and then realize the quotes fit into that? You know what, you know what I mean? Yeah, I absolutely know what you mean. Both happened. Um, there were moments where I was writing and realized, you know, that this is a setup for a perfect Edgar Allan Poe quote or something. Somebody needs to make allusion to this because I, you know, I had have a quote in my mind or whatever as I was writing. And I was like, wow, this is this is hearkening back to this. And so I would make a character, you know, just quoted under their breath as an observation of what they were then seeing. Um, mm -hmm. The Bible quotes uh, were very, uh, they came about by a different phenomenon. So Idolette is a Puritan and Puritans would just speak Bible. If you saw the 2016 horror movie called The Witch, a ton of those, it, which it, it's, mm -hmm. takes place in the 1630s around a, a Puritan family, a ton of that dialogue is just embedded Bible quotes. It's not original thought. They are just speaking Bible. And that is what the okay. Puritans did. And they prayed the scriptures. They referred to it as pleading the promises. And so I had to have Idolette do that since she is kind of an artifact, right? She's kind of the 16th century thrust into the 21st. And so yeah. that's what she does. She just speaks Bible. It's just always on her tongue. Her worldview is informed by that. And you know, the real climax of the book is when she finally gets to pray. She prays for a couple paragraphs of Bible quotes in anguish. And that's actually the moral climax of the story, even though it's not the plot climax. And so that, that had to be there. The other thing is, I mentioned earlier the concept of the pre-evangelized versus post-Christian America. Uh, here in the mm -hmm. West, very few people really truly know what the Bible is compared to what it was in percentage of population in, say, the 19th century or earlier. You know, we're in post-Christian America, and a lot of people now think, well, the Bible is just a big book of rules, or it's just a giant book of collected myth, and they actually have no idea what's in it. And there are just a ton right. of really cool foreboding verses in the Bible. Uh, particularly in the book of Job, which I reference a lot in this, where there's, I mean, it's just downright horror movie level, scary stuff, really spooky quotes. And so I was deliberately putting that in there through that character to expose uh, this post-Christian world we live in, at least the few readers I can reach, to what's in the text. Uh, things that you would maybe never actually guess if you've never read it. You're thinking it's all just thou shalt not and thou shalt not and whatever, right. but it's not at all. And so I really wanted to put all this cool dialogue in the form of puritanical uh, lifestyle into her. And so I read the Bible regularly. And so I was reading through it cover to cover three times over while I wrote this novel. And so I was, I was grabbing quotes, you know, in a notebook as I went and saying, Oh, I got to use that. I got to use that. I got to use that. Oh, okay. And, and in, times when I didn't have one, I would go back looking for one. So some of them were very much deliberate to get back to your original question. Some of them happened as I, I researched them as needed. And, and that's how it came about. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. You know, I, I read, there's an interview online of you uh, from 2015 about your book collection. And it said you mainly collect uh, forensic pathology books and then 
uh, books, uh, Bibles and like biblical, biblical studies, which from what we've been talking about, those both make a lot of sense. And, and obviously the, the biblical collection inspired the books or inspired the quotes in the, in the book. Like you just said, mm-hmm. how did you become interested in collecting books? Uh, started with Edgar Allan Poe, uh, when I was pretty young, that was my favorite author. And I've, I just kind of became enamored with him and his life. He actually mostly wrote humorous tales and satires, even though, and hoaxes, even though he's known for his horror, he was actually a really funny guy and his horror what? is actually a minority of what he wrote. Um, well, I didn't know that at all. Was, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. yeah, we could have, we could talk for days on Poe. I've, <laughs> anyway, um, read a ton of biographies on him. His death is actually a total mystery. His death was more mysterious than anything he wrote. Um, but any event, so I was looking for good copies of Edgar Allan Poe, uh, which, you know, I wanted some that just looked really impressive. And that led me to the antiquarian book world and then uh, got into college and was interested in dissection, obviously. So I started with anatomy books and then discovered autopsy books and the whole thing just took off from there. And then really got serious into collecting theology uh, when I got my head handed to me on eBay auctions because I never lost an autopsy book auction ever because nobody collects it. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so I'd get them dirt cheap and then I'd start bidding on 18th century Bibles and couldn't believe the price tag. So I had to kind of step up my game to be able to collect those. Um, But that's how it is. And of course, I mentioned I had to integrate that into the novel. You know, there's antiquarian bookshop scenes and Mm -hmm. Idolette carries her Bible in her pocket that is described in some degree of detail. And that's actually uh, a Freuben Bible. I'm, I'm actually describing the Biblia Integra there. That's a real Bible. Hers is nicer than mine, but I own a copy. Um, hers is way better than my copy, actually. <laughs> and oh. uh, the antagonist has her book as well, which I deliberately describe with some degree of contempt. You know, Idolette's Bible is... 15th century leather bound with clasps and the antagonist has this modern purple cloth bound, you know, cheap book. Mm-hmm. And so I actually set those deliberately in contrast, which is just another level of nerddom coming out of me there. That's okay. That's uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all about nerddom. Um, are you, <laughs> are you still like actively collecting? Yes, I am. Okay. What would you say is your most prized uh, book in your collection? In my theology collection, probably my personal favorite is Augustine Calmay's 1732 Dictionary of the Bible. And so there's this anachronistic character, Dom Calmay, in the novel. Mm-hmm. And he's based on a real guy from the 18th century, not the 16th century. And his Dictionary of the Bible is just kind of kind of captures everything about what I like collecting with maps and plates and a ton of esoteric information. And it's, it's huge three volumes in folio. I mean, it's just massive, uh, in my pathology collection. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what would be my most prized, maybe Maurice Latoul's pratique des autopsies from 1903. Um, that's, that's a little bit hard one to find. And the, the autopsy illustrations are just just phenomenal in that book, but it's hard to pick a winner in the autopsy books, but yeah, I'm still actively collecting and I also deal in books now. So I'm selling as well. Um, it's, it's kind of taken on its own life really. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Okay. 
the book is out. And uh, so what's, what's next for you as far as writing projects? Do you have, do you have any that, you, that you've been thinking about? Oh yeah. I have about 10 other books in the works that are nonfiction uh, right okay. now. I've, I've got one about ancient Near Eastern literature. I'm writing a couple autopsy books, one on the history of the autopsy. One is a more modern textbook. I, I'm dabbling. I've started to pen some stuff on writing, uh, a bio, basically a biography of the death of Edgar Allan Poe, which I mentioned was okay. very mysterious, and it's never been really addressed appropriately by a physician and specifically a forensic pathologist. So I, I'd kind of like to do that. And I, I've, I actually have a children's book I'm working on, oddly enough. Um, really? So I, I've got a lot going, and there I have initial ideas for a sequel for this novel. Obviously, I set it up a bit. There, you know, there's there's stuff in it where mm -hmm. you see, oh yeah, that's got sequel potential in it, and so sure, I, sure. I have some initial ideas for that. But it's lower down on the list because I gotta crank out some of these other projects I've had, you know, on the back burner for years while I finished up the novel. So, so I'm definitely writing and writing a lot, probably too much. In point of fact, my wife would probably appreciate it if I would stop and pay more attention to her and the kids. Right. Okay. That sounds great. I definitely look forward to those. This has been really interesting. I appreciate the the uh, kind of look behind the scenes uh, at the at the grave below. So this has been fun, uh, Doctor Hansma. Th thanks very much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation, and this was a lot of fun getting a chance to discuss this. I haven't done such an interview, and I I really enjoyed being able to talk about the behind the scenes components. So thank you. Big thanks to Dr. Patrick Hansma. It was really interesting to get a look into his writing process. I really enjoyed that. There is a link in the show notes if you want to pick up the book, which I highly recommend you do, and leave a review for it too. I know Dr. Hansma would appreciate that. So that link will be in the show notes. That's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. And as I mentioned last time, uh, last week I had the honor to be back on PathCast, which was a lot of fun. I was also interviewed for the Voicebrook blog, about this podcast. So I'll have links to those uh, on the website as well. And of course, you can always follow this show on Twitter at People of Path. And if you like this episode, make sure you share it with someone you know. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. And now here's a trailer from my interview with Dr. Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell about their book, First Cut. You mentioned, Dr. Melanick, that you had about 100 pages to start with. Did you have Dr. Tesca at that time? I mean, when, when, when did your main character, how did she develop? I did have that character. I think she had a different name initially, but uh, I, I don't remember what her original name was because she's Jessie for us now. But uh, yes, I did have that character. I wanted her to be a woman. Uh, forensic pathologist who had just finished her training. So in some ways, First Cut is a little bit like a follow-up to Working Stiff, but a fictionalized one, because at the end of Working Stiff, I finished my fellowship training, and that's exactly right. at the time that we're picking up in Dr. Tesca's life. Right.
So I, I was at least trying to get her young um, and focus on the portion of uh, a forensic pathologist's career when she is still learning and that really sharp learning curve that happens right when you get out of fellowship and you have to be independent for the first time. You have to actually apply everything that you've learned. Jesse Tesca is not based on Judy. She, there's there's Inspired things about her. <laughs> there's, th there's things about her that are part of Judy's personality. There's things about her that are part of my personality. In some ways, she's like our naughty fifth daughter. To hear more from Dr. Milanik and TJ, check out episode number four of the People of Pathology podcast.